The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Before the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln criticized those who characterized the idea of secession as nothing more than a divorce between incompatible partners. He noted the partners could not physically separate, and if they could, at the will of one party unilaterally, then it was, quote, not anything like a regular marriage at all, but only a sort of free love arrangement. After the war, others took up the image of North and South as male and female partners. John W. DeForest's novel, Miss Ravenel's Conversion from Secession to Loyalty, and D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, both centered on North-South romances. Today, we'll look at a real example of this phenomenon, chronicled in the book Undaunted Heart, the true story of a Southern belle and a Yankee general, in our conversation with author Susie Barrelly on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this beautiful Friday afternoon in 2010 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not representing the university, not doing any more than using its facilities, uh, not speaking on its behalf, and I'm sure my guest likewise will speak only for herself. Well, it is a beautiful afternoon. It is September. It is absurdly hot, as it will stay probably for another month or two or maybe three, uh, as North Carolina does in the fall. But it's a new academic year. The students are back. And there is, well, not universal, but spontaneously several faculty here at ECU have told me how much better this year's freshman class is than past classes that they can remember. And it might have something to do with the increase in standards. Uh, East Carolina raised its SAT minimum requirements. Uh, I don't know what they were before, but they could not have been exceedingly challenging. 
Uh, it could be something to do with the economy uh, and the growth of the university. We had a, a record number of applicants, uh, 19,000 for 4,000 spaces last year. So we're actually becoming a selective institution of higher learning, and the students who get in are doing their work, reading their uh, assignments and contributing in class. It's a, uh, the silver lining, perhaps, of the, the uh, conditions, perhaps, that are causing so many students to apply uh, rather than go out and find work or perhaps apply at more expensive places. I don't know. But we'll take it for what it's worth. Uh, the students are back. They're doing the work. The football team is back. The Pirates won their first game in a spectacular fashion uh, on the last play of a game that saw 100 points scored total. And this is football, not basketball. So it was. Uh, so morale has been high all all week on campus from that event. Uh, before getting started, I will send greetings home to. Uh, the show's most faithful listener, uh, my mother, back home in Michigan, who's recuperating now from a broken arm, unfortunately, suffered this week. And uh, Mom, I hope you are uh, feeling better today and look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, speaking of looking forward, we have some very interesting guests lined up for the weeks ahead. Uh, Cynthia Watchtel will be with us next week who has written uh, War No More, about uh, anti-war literature of the Civil War. Uh, we'll have a, a week off for the Lincoln Studies Conference, and then James Lowen will join us, who's uh, written a book not quite published yet, The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, uh, promising always to be interesting. And then we've got uh, some people who've been on the show before, like Peter Carmichael coming up, uh, we've got James Ogden III, Brian Miller, Elizabeth Pryor, Mark Egnall, uh, a lot of very interesting authors uh, and, and scholars who have a lot to say about Civil War scholarship. Uh, we are just entering, uh, approaching the sesquicentennial, and uh, it looks like we may be in for another wave of, of really interesting new ways of approaching this era in our history. We can certainly hope for that. But of course, there are also some there's good in some of the works already published, in particular, my own books, which you'll want to get if you haven't already. Time for the shameless self-promotion. If you want to contribute to Civil War Talk Radio, you can do so with the miracle of PayPal. Uh, go to the paypal.com website and send your cash to civilwartr at aol.com. Uh, they'll show you how to do it when you get there. For uh, $25, you can get a copy of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, or a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, if you don't have either one, uh, or both for that matter. Uh, while supplies last, it's time for me to make some room on the shelves here. So both books, uh, if you can uh, send $25 to the show's book fund to help buy books like the one that we'll be discussing today and the week after and the week after that and so on. Well, this week, the book as described in the introduction is called Undaunted Heart, uh, somewhat different from books we've looked at in the past, but uh, one I think you'll be interested in hearing about. Uh, the author, uh, Susie Barely is with us, I hope. Are you there, Ms. Barely? Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks for joining me on the show. Hi, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. 
And am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Barilli. Barilli. Thank you. That's okay. Sure. They may have pronounced it that way somewhere other else in Italy. So it's an Italian name in my husband's family. All right. We'll make sure we get that. I'm going to write it here on the book in a uh, phonetic fashion there and make sure that I don't make that mistake again. That's uh, okay. People have, I tell my students it's B-U-H-R-I-L-L-E-E. <laughs> ah, that does it. Uh, there we are. Barilli. It, it's uh, well. If we can go by first names, that'll make it easier instead sure, of Prokopovich uh, and and Borelli. Um Well, so you say you have students. Um, you have a day job teaching. I do. I teach um, English at Wake Tech Community College in Raleigh. So we're back starting the semester, just like you were talking about starting the semester off at East Carolina, and we're overflowing just like you all are. It's amazing the the growth in in uh, uh, higher education. Uh, the same is true. The Pitt County Community College is big here. I'm, I'm sure State and Chapel Hill are full. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think the same thing is happening all around. So uh, it 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 has its its side benefit. I don't know if you're seeing uh, an improvement in students. That may be specific that we finally raised the bar. As somebody noted, our standards are now as high as those of the NCAA, uh, <laughs> which is. <laughs> Not not a high bar for our international listeners. That's the Collegiate Athletic Association. Right. Um, so you, you teach uh, you teach English. Um, I teach freshman composition. I'm sure that a lot of those those young people are just getting started in on their first classes. That's right. They're getting accustomed to uh, to a new lifestyle. So this book then is something you did as a, a side project. Uh, how did you get involved in this story? Um, and it was a side project, and I got involved in it, um, one, because it was a family story that I had grown up hearing all my life about Ellie Swain and the general, um, and then also because after only knowing a little bit about them as I was growing up, I stumbled upon some letters that she wrote to her parents after she married and moved away from North Carolina. And moved away in us in September, so up to Freeport, Illinois, where it was a little bit cooler in the in the fall, although not a lot. And um, when I stumbled upon these letters and started reading about what her life and her marriage to to her husband was like, I decided that perhaps the rest of their story, so to speak, needed to be told. Well, let's let's introduce the characters uh, first for our listeners. Uh, Ella Swain and uh, the general. Uh, who, who was Ella Swain? Ella Swain was the youngest daughter of David and Eleanor Swain. He was a former North Carolina governor and was the president of the University of North Carolina from 1835 until 1868. So during the Civil War, he was president. His wife, Mrs. Swain, was the daughter of a State Secretary of State, a former Secretary of State, and also the granddaughter of um, Richard Caswell, who was North Carolina's first Revolutionary War governor. So um, they had some family heritage to to carry on with them, which makes part of the story um, the the um, intrigue that that it gives us. But so she was their youngest daughter. So uh, this is really one of the first families of, of the state, the former governor or president of, of UNC yes, related to the yes. revolution. Yes, and so um, there was a lot riding on whatever their children did, you know, representing their parents well, representing the state well. Um, and even as a young woman, she had a little bit riding on her. 
Did she have brothers or sisters? She had um, an older brother, Richard, who had who was an assistant surgeon during the Civil War, and she had an older sister, Anne, who was um, nearly 15 years younger. Uh, excuse me, older than she. So, so her brother served in the war. He did. Uh huh. So, so there, so that adds to the the, the Confederate connection that, that this is a representative family. Yes, because she, you know, here was her here was her brother serving in the Confederacy, and then she falling in love with one of those dreaded Yankees. Well, let's see how that comes about. Um, if, if she's in Chapel Hill, where her father is president of the university, there's uh, uh, our listeners will know there's no fighting there until very late in the war. Uh, can, can you set the scene when uh, when did the Yankees arrive uh, in Chapel Hill? They arrived in middle of April, um, and they came because David Swain had been called on by Confederate Governor Zebulon Vance to help treat the surrender of North Carolina. And so he and former Governor Graham had gone over to outside of Raleigh to meet with General Sherman and say, you know, the the Confederacy is falling, and we're here to surrender the capital. And um, there's a couple of conditions that we like. And one of the conditions was that the capital of Raleigh not be burned, and the other was that the university would be protected. And General Sherman agreed to both of these conditions. And so, so he sent a brigade of soldiers over to Chapel, over to Chapel Hill to protect the university from any um, from anything that might happen. You know, there were a lot of young Confederate soldiers who'd been gone from home a long, long time, and they were hungry and and they were they were looking for a better life. And and so any kind of foraging or pillaging that that could harm the university, that's what they were there to protect. Now, this is as you say, by 1865, by April 65, the uh, uh, the Confederacy is on its last legs. The the, the people are largely recognizing this but there are also uh but but it, the war is not over i mean there are still people fighting there you mentioned confederate soldiers passing through raleigh uh, uh in the last days of the war well on the way to chapel hill after after general atkins brigade had been ordered over there they did encounter a small band of, of confederate soldiers and there was a little bit of skirmishing around what today is morrisville north carolina um, between Cary and, and Durham. And so there was a skirmishing that took place there, and there was still some some skirmishing taking place out in the western part of the state because it took those folks a little bit longer to get word that that the war and fighting had ended. And uh, when you talk about the, the, the risk of foraging, you mentioned, again, uh, it's not just the Union soldiers, but you've got Wheeler's Confederate cavalry that's been falling back in front of Sherman's army and... Uh, uh, it, there are some communities that, that wrote later that the, the only thing they dreaded as much as Sherman's men were Wheeler's men. Uh, so, so you've really got the people of Raleigh and then Chapel Hill, which is for our, our, our non-North Carolinian listeners. How, how many? How far away are those two communities? Oh, less than thirty miles apart. Okay, so we're, we're neighboring towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raleigh is a city. Chapel Hill's still a town. Uh, there's definitely risk both from the the incoming northern armies and the outgoing uh, confederate armies right and you know hungry animals the horses that they were riding the mules that they carried with them just 
just a lot, a lot of people all in one place at one time creating a demand on the land that wasn't there to be able to sustain it. Mm-hmm. And so everybody fighting at, at once for, for what little there was. So Sherman dispatches a brigade, uh, usually that's four or five regiments or so, uh, off to Chapel Hill to, to secure the place and protect the civilians. Um, the uh, So who's in command of this brigade? Let's introduce our other main character. All righty. The other one is a young man named Smith Dykins Atkins. He's a, an attorney from Freeport, Illinois, who joined up as soon as the Abraham Lincoln called for troops um, and wound up staying in the entire war, distinguished himself in the battlefield as a leader. He was never injured or wounded. He, he was ill a couple of times, but he was never injured or wounded, but he distinguished himself as a leader, had been promoted, 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 and by the time his, his brigade got to Chapel Hill, he was uh, a brigadier general. So he's he had seen a fair amount of action. Uh, a representative, northern volunteer soldier, not not a professional soldier. So he's an attorney and does other right. things before the war. Yeah, not a professional, but had seen a lot of fighting. Um, the the 92nd Illinois came down through Tennessee, down the um, Chattanooga and Chickamauga, and was involved in all that fighting, and then was with Sherman for his march to the sea. So they had taken place in all those battles that had occurred. So, and and uh, now the 92nd Illinois Regiment, and again, uh, there will be listeners who will be be quicker to recognize that even uh, uh, than I was when first reading. Uh, served in uh, Wilder's Brigade at one time. They did uh, the brigade that first used as Spencer rifles, and they were transferred over to Wilder's Brigade and served for a while with that until they finally met up with Sherman and were put under his and Kilpatrick's um, command. So, so they, uh, with the the new weapons, the repeating rifles, they had uh, certainly had an advantage, and also meant they were mounted. They they rode horses. Uh, they, I guess they were mounted infantry technically, as opposed to cavalry. Um, but that was an innovation uh, of, of Wilders in the uh, in the war to to have soldiers fight on foot, but uh, ride horses from place to place. So now, were they still were they mounted when they got to Chapel Hill? Did they arrive on horseback or on foot? Do they you arrived on horseback. Well, some were on foot, but they arrived on horseback and okay. um, and and put in charge of um, of protecting the university and soldiers quartered in families' homes. There in Chapel Hill, the horses stayed in one of the buildings on on campus, and um, so they brought everything with them that they had used in battle. They they had brought with them to Chapel Hill. And how were they received there by the civilians? Well, they were received a little warily, of course, because um, they had the the Chapel Hillians knew, of course, that the war was over and that the Confederacy had lost, but. Chapel Hillians were also good Southerners, and so when these soldiers arrived and they found that they were going to be quartered in their homes, they assented to that and began setting about making the peace, so to speak, um, you know, with, with, with what was going to happen as, as the Union came back together again. Well, we'll start that uh, reunification process in just a moment. We're going to take a short break now, and we'll come right back. Uh, We're talking with 
Susie Barely on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. What happens to universities in wartime? As a loyal ECU pirate, I won't want to hear anything bad about what happened to UNC. Well, maybe a little. We'll find out when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Every day, men and women worldwide seek lasting love relationships. They submit their profiles to Internet dating services. Some find success, while many flounder in pursuit of lasting love. In Relationship Matters with Derek and Allison Young, you'll learn how certain mindsets and behaviors can either save relationships or sabotage them. Meeting people is only a part of the equation. Discover how you can find love that lasts. Relationship Matters is heard Wednesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Susie Barely, author of Undaunted Heart, the true story of a Southern Belle and a Yankee general. And we talked in the first section about how the this uh, how uh, Ella Swain, a daughter of a former governor of North Carolina and current president of the University of North Carolina, uh, encountered a Yankee general. Uh, Smith Adkins, and uh, uh, we were just, uh, we've been sort of taking our time getting to the uh, exciting romantic part, uh, stringing the listener's interest along, but the commercial uh, that was just played during the break, uh, I'm never sure if they play the same ones during the recorded versions, if I hear what you're hearing, but if you heard the ad for the relationship program on uh, World Talk Radio, well, that's just appropriate because uh, we're getting now to the relationship uh, when the Union Brigade commander shows up in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, home of the University of of North Carolina, uh, with his brigade to secure the place under Sherman's orders. And there uh, there is the university president's daughter. Um, in, uh, in, In your book, you say there are multiple... Uh, accounts, uh, traditional oral history uh, accounts of how the two of them uh, uh, met. Can can you share those? Yes, there's there's several, and most of them are about the same. I mean, in in one of the accounts, um, one of one of the soldiers with with um, Atkins claims to have done the introduction, and in another one, they're in a, a certain place. But the one that has has always been the one that um, <clears throat> that I grew up with. And that actually, um, the Swain's neighbor, Cornelia Phillips Spencer, had recorded in her journal and diary, was that um, after General Atkins had called on President Swain to, as the leading official in the town to announce that his soldiers were there and that they were assigned to protect the university, 
David Swain invited him into his home and was cordial to him. Um, as, as far as Swain was concerned, the war was over. It was time to move on. He had not been a, a fan of secession until it became absolutely necessary, and it was his feeling that now the war was over, it was time to get back to life as they had known it before the war. He invited General Atkins in. And the two men started talking because David Swain had been a lawyer before being governor and a president, and General Atkins was a lawyer before being a soldier, and they both had an interest in history. So the story goes that President Swain couldn't find a book that he wanted to show to General Atkins, so he hollered out the, the door of his, of his office and asked somebody to, to bring him his book, and that someone was his youngest daughter, Ella, 22 years old, um, blue eyes, shoulder-length dark brown hair, walks in, and as Mrs. Spencer described um, very haughtily, she was going to have nothing to do with this Yankee general, but when her father introduced her, forced to, because of etiquette, to introduce his daughter to this Yankee general, Mrs. Spencer writes that the two changed eyes and a wooing followed. So it was love at first sight. Now, this would be problematic, as, as you say, for a, a Confederate woman uh, of Swain, Ella Swain's age. Um, the, the, there are some scholars, uh, Jacqueline Campbell among them, who, who demonstrated that among uh, women in the Confederacy, often the, the nationalist fervor was, was stronger even than among men. Uh, and, and some of the uh, descriptions you, you, you offer of civilians in Chapel Hill seem to suggest the women were uh, at least as, as fervent in their, their Confederate uh, loyalty as, as the men. Uh, well, yeah, we have to remember that that the men went off to war and left the women at home to tend to whatever the home fires were, whether it was tending a farm, tending a business, tending a, um, a, a family of small children, whatever it was. And so the women had shouldered a lot of the burden of, of the home front during the war. And so they, they thought that they were as involved as the soldiers were in terms of keeping the Confederacy together. So some fo some historians believe that that the women were harder to let go of it than the men once the war was over. And I did find proof of that. Um, I found a, a poem that Ella's mother had written a year after the war ended, in which she's told of the difficulty of having pledged allegiance to the Confederate flag for four years, suddenly required to turn her allegiance to the United States of America flag and the difficulty involved in those feelings. And that that uh, the flag that she said that she that, that they once were loyal to and now are supposed to be loyal to again it, it right. was very difficult. Uh, that I mean I suppose that makes sense. You, the, among the the soldiers, there's the feeling uh, the, the Confederate soldiers they have fought. Uh, they've done all they could. They've they've fought and and lost. Uh, they've been told by uh, at least uh, those who fought under Lee that it, they had done all that could be expected. It was time to put down their weapons and go home. Uh, there's a sense of closure there. Uh, you know, not to trivialize warfare as as sports, but uh, you can lose a game in which you, you've given your all and, and feel good about it. Uh, if all you're doing is watching, sometimes it's more bitter. Uh, not to suggest the women of the were merely watching, as you say, they're certainly 
giving a great deal and, and keeping the, the home front intact. But they never had that satisfaction of, uh, of actually fighting, of, of the release of, uh, of engaging in combat. So when it's over, there's no... There's, there's that no letdown, sense. but nothing. But right, there's there's a letdown, but there's there's nothing final about it. They simply hear in a telegram, the war's over. That's it. Boom. Exactly, and something that a lot of it's easy to forget, and, and to some extent, this sort of comes back in, in reading uh, your your account of what's happening in April 1865. That uh, we know that's the last year of the war as we read the book, but the people who are there don't know that, and. Even after Lee's surrender, there are those who in the South who thought, well, you know, it's, that's a bad break, but we'll recover, we'll, we'll continue fighting. Uh, so the actual acceptance of defeat uh, really comes with great difficulty to a lot of people. Right. It was difficult to do. What, what is interesting for Ella and the young women of the university is there were, there were only a handful of students left at the university for that school year, the fall of 1864 to spring of 1865 school year, they hadn't done much flirting with young men or or having young men call on them during these four years. And and suddenly for them, first before Atkins soldiers get there, General Wheeler and his soldiers, Confederate soldiers, come marching through town, and there's a great celebration at seeing these soldiers. Then they hightail it out of there knowing that they'll be arrested if they're found when the when the Yankee soldiers arrive and then here these Union soldiers come in and so now these young women who have not seen young men in four year long years suddenly there's lots of of young men in town and so it's kind of exciting for these young women you know we're talking about we're talking about young women who were the age of 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 the young poets there at East Carolina today yeah. And and uh, my own daughter is a uh, college freshman this year, so uh, this, this strikes close to home. Um, and and, uh, and and these young men, uh, the Union soldiers, are are well fed and reasonably healthy, and uh, uh, getting paid regularly, and uh, uh, you know attractive in in that sense uh, compared to the privation that the Confederacy has known for four years. So. It's, I guess, not not uh, a mystery why they might seem attractive. And then, in your account, the, uh, the the love at first sight takes place when Adkins and Swain look at each other. Uh, but that's not a popular choice with the rest of the town. I mean, not every young woman falls for a Yankee soldier. Uh, no, there are reports that a couple of the young women are flirting, and maybe one of them is going to marry. But um, and and going on not real dates with them but being seen around town with them but ella is the one who suddenly finds herself at the forefront when atkins begins calling on her every day when he's invited to dine at the swain home when his soldiers go over there and serenade outside the family's home and suddenly there's this huge lens on the family and on this young woman that never before would she have expected would happen. Everybody watching her every move, what's going to happen, and many of them criticizing her behavior. Well, what what are the courtship rituals of this era, and how much choice does she have in in the choice of a mate? Well, I'm not certain that that um that her f- parents had said you're going to marry whoever. 
but um, there hadn't been a lot of, of dating taking place during the war because the, the number of young men were, were few. Um, her mother did not want anything to do with this young man, did not want her to have anything to do with this young man. In fact, declined to to eat with the family when President Swain invited young Atkins to eat with the family. So um, there she was, torn between her mother not wanting her to have anything to do with this young man and her father putting aside the last four years and moving on and... and um, I wouldn't say he was encouraging it, but I don't know that he discouraged it to the um, to the degree that some folks might have liked him to. So, when you say it was love at first sight between these two, it 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 seems like it took uh, Miss Swain uh, at least a little while to come around to to recognizing that. Um, and, and maybe part of it, not wanting to recognize it. Um, she seemed to be much more um, in allegiance to the Confederacy at the end than her husband. And, and of course, again, uh, following what, what we know about how the women reacted, um, she had written a letter to a friend sometime in the war saying, you know, that we're never going to give up. We're not ever, ever, ever going to give up the cause. But now, after proclaiming that, to a friend and and seemingly doing what she thought was best as a as a um, as a Confederate, discovering that all of that was gone and unable to let go of it quite quite so easily. So, does this relationship between Swain and Atkins become public knowledge? Immediately, immediately when his soldiers are going over there and serenading, immediately when his horse is seen there and him going in every day, he even started writing her poetry. Um, and they're seen out together riding. And, and so, yes, very much does it become public knowledge that, that this is happening. And, and, and this can't go well for, uh, for her father. Uh, the former governor is now welcoming a Yankee into the household. Right, and, and you're right. There were lots of folks who, who just thought it was awful. How could he sell out the university? How could he sell out the state? How could he sell out the Confederacy? Um, and so he was on the hot seat in that respect. Um, but, again, not having been a strong secessionist in the beginning, he was following what he felt was going to be best for everyone involved. You know, when you only have a handful of students at the university for a whole school year, you're talking about a, lo- a loss of revenue. The faculty had gone without pay during much of that time. Um, it had been difficult. And just knowing that with the war over and life starting to get back to some kind of normalcy that the university would be in better shape, I'm sure, had to be in his thoughts as well. well I want to get back to the relationship momentarily, but you mentioned the university uh, with the war going on, of course, most of the young men are gone. Uh, there were, were were there more than a, how many students were there uh, uh, in the late 18, in the mid eighteen sixties? There were no more than than a, a dozen or so students left um, by the time that last school year began. That last school year of the war, and most of them were younger. Um, many of them had joined. Many of them had left the university to join up as soldiers. Some of the faculty had joined to become soldiers. Um, it had been a difficult time, but but the university remained open, the only university, uh, state university, to remain open 
during that time during the war. And something that David Swain was proud of, that he'd been able to keep it open, but it went at a cost. You know, that happened at a cost. Now, the University of North Carolina is the, the oldest public university in the United States. That's correct. Uh, so it, it, its roots go back uh, uh, to the previous century. Uh, there are you know, private schools like Harvard and Yale that predate it, uh, but it is... It was an old school even during the Civil War, and so I guess we can understand President Swain being determined to keep it open, to keep the the tradition going, but it's really, uh, with only a few students, literally, uh, there's not much there. Um, Now, one can understand, on the one hand, that it might help the university, uh, in Swain's view, to to move forward to... uh, uh, to support this relationship of his daughter with a, a Yankee officer it might might pay dividends in some way, not to suggest he was being cynical with his daughter's future husband, but, uh, well, but I guess one thing, it, it seems he actually likes uh, General Adkins quite a bit based on uh, the conversations that you report and the, the book he inscribes to him. He did. He inscribed a copy of a book that he had to him several days after they met. Um, but I... He didn't, he didn't just let his daughter run off and marry this, this Yankee soldier. Um, that's some, now, now, maybe we move forward just a little bit in that three weeks after the couple met, Atkins and his soldiers were, were ordered out of Chapel Hill um, to be mustered out of the Army. And when he left, she told her father and her mother that they were engaged. General uh-huh. Atkins, we do not know that he came to, to President Swain to ask for his for Ella's hand, and we don't know that he didn't come. What we do know is that she told her parents she was engaged. And sometime that summer, her father went to Illinois to check out this young man. Once the war was over with, David Swain made several trips up to Washington, D.C. to try to lobby for the university and getting some funding and, and getting it back on its feet again, and, and also to New York, where he where he went in search of some funds, private funds to keep the university open. So um, he probably on one of those trips made the trip out to Illinois. Now there's only one source that says he went out there, but but the fact that he checked into this young man and found out that he did come from a good family, that he had a good job, that he had a job waiting for him was was probably enough to to make him think. Well, if this is going to happen, at least. At least my daughter's fallen in love with an intelligent young man who's going to take care of her. So the so he at least approves uh, if if perhaps her mother is not quite so comfortable with the idea. Uh, when do they get married? They got married in August, August twenty third that summer. Um, Atkins came back one time to visit before his soldiers were finally mustered out entirely the first of July. And he went on back home to Freeport, ostensibly to find a place for for him and his new bride to live and also to, to make sure that his job was in place. And Ella then started getting ready for, for the wedding. And then he returned to Chapel Hill for the wedding. So they uh, uh, they got married. Did, did uh, Was it a big wedding? It, it appears that perhaps they invited some friends of the family um, they invited family members, her aunts, a few folks in town. Mrs. Spencer, their neighbor, came, and her brother came. 
Um, several of Atkins' um, Yankee soldiers were there with him. And, and we're told from, from Mrs. Swain's diary that there were a few Confederate, former Confederate soldiers there as well. But they got married at the Swain home um, in the evening. And the disgruntlement continued. The students who were there on campus rang the bell of South Building, which is the administration building, for three hours that evening during the wedding ceremony, and then hung General Atkins and President Swain in effigy from the bell tower. So despite the fact that this very romantic event was taking, home, taking place in Ella's home, the students were acting, were acting out and, and protesting it. Uh, well, we'll take a break here, and we'll come back and find out more about the post-war lives of the Atkins-Swain marriage when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. In novels, the romance between a Southern Belle and a Yankee officer is often seen as romantic reconciliation. But could it be seen as collaboration with the enemy? We'll discuss how to treat this post-war relationship when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Ready to revolutionize your thinking? It's time to learn about the clarity, simplicity, and speed of systems thinking and how it can be applied to every aspect of your daily life. Each week, tune in to Steve Haynes Live and learn one systems thinking concept. You'll also learn three simple, clear, and integrated applications that you can use instantly. You can apply them to your life, job, family, organization, government, and or society. Steve Haynes Live broadcasts every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Join Steve, and together we will make a global difference. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Susie Barrelly, author of Undaunted Heart, the true story of a Southern Belle and a Yankee general. We've been talking about this marriage between Ella Swain, daughter of the president of the University of North Carolina and a former governor, and uh, Major General Smith Dykins Atkins, uh, at one time commander of the 92nd Illinois Mounted Infantry Regiment, later uh, brigade commander in Sherman's army. They met in the uh, occupation, Union occupation of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, at the very end of the war, uh, fell in love at first sight, and were married by the end of the summer of 1865. Uh, so far, it looks like we've got uh, a boy meets girl story, uh, a nice happy story, but uh, as uh, Susie, as you were saying at the end of our last 
uh, segment, not everybody was happy. The the students at the university rung bells and, and protest throughout the wedding ceremony and uh, uh, hanged uh, the bride's father and uh, in effigy uh, as a, a, a protest against this. Uh, it, it put me in mind, reading this, uh, of the fate of French women who found German husbands during the uh, occupation of France during World War II. Uh, after the liberation, their, they were, their heads were shaved as a mark of shame. They were branded as collaborators. Uh, they may have given in to uh, love without any thought of politics, but their, their country men and women did not take kindly to those relationships. Um, what about uh, uh, Ella Swain and, and the people of her town? Well, things might have gone a little differently if she and General Atkins had stayed in Chapel Hill. But because he had been an attorney before the war, um, he, had been, he had been promised the postmaster's position in his hometown of Freeport, Illinois, once the war was over. And so they had something for him to go back to Illinois for. Now, a lot of those young Yankee soldiers stayed down in the South and, and wound up marrying young girls. And maybe because they stayed in the South, they were more welcomed as time went by than, than those who did not. So Ella went with her new husband to Freeport, Illinois, about 120 miles northwest of Chicago, and so wasn't around for any of the talk that might have gone on behind her back had perhaps they stayed and lived in Chapel Hill. Now, her father, however, was still there, and, and he suffered some backlash for this. He did suffer backlash, and probably the, the, the largest backlash came from the fact that Reconstruction government that had been appointed in all the different states to get the states back into the Union setting up the governments to sort of get them, um, you know, back following the party line, so to speak, um, saw what was going on in terms of the university struggling and decided that, that maybe some change would help bring the university back to its glory days of, of, of more students and a, and a more vital role in the, in, the, in the state. And so they were trying very, very hard to get rid of President Swain and his faculty so they could implement some new ways of learning, get the students coming back in, and get some new leadership that perhaps wouldn't so represent the old university. And so David Swain, for the next couple of years, found himself in that position of struggling to, to keep the university doing what had always been its mission in his eyes and trying to fend off the the suggestions of the state's reconstruction government to make some major changes. So that, that uh, to anyone in, involved in higher education, that description of the uh, state government trying to change the mission and identity of the institution uh, at the cost of the jobs of everybody there certainly strikes fear in one's heart. Um, uh, one, one hates to see politicians making those decisions instead of people uh, in the the actual disciplines that are being taught but uh, but these were remarkable times of course and uh, uh, ultimately Swain does lose his job uh, he does lose his job um, finally the reconstruction government 
said you, it's it, three years later, however, says you and your faculty are out. So in summer of 1868 is finally when this is happening. Um, and probably lucky for David Swain, he was injured in an accident, in a buggy accident. He had injuries that he did not recover from. And within a month after the state government had said, you're out as president, he died. So he never really had to live a life of watching his university um, go through the next few years that it went through, the turmoil and all, because sadly he died that summer of 1868. Well, your book describes the the next several decades of, of life for the uh, the, the new Swain family, uh, Atkins and Swain, as well as uh, Ella Swain's parents and, and siblings, and uh, you know, sad to say, uh, it, it's a story that really brings home how what a different world we live in today in terms of uh, mortality rates. Oh yes, uh, they um, lost several children as um, their first baby died the day it was born. Her second child died at 14 months old. Um, Ella's older sister dies the same the same month that her second child is born. Um, there there is lots and lots of sadness that takes place in this couple's lives throughout the course of their marriage. The uh, I, I'm reminded people sometimes remark on the fact that uh, Abraham Lincoln lost a. Uh, uh, a son uh, at, at a very young age in 1850, and so did uh, Edwin Stanton. I've heard people say that it was a bond that they both shared that loss. But others have pointed out, well, almost everyone shared that loss. Um, the, the, the death of children was much, much more common then than it is now. But it doesn't make it any easier to read about uh, uh, the loss of the, the children of, of, of Atkins uh, and Swain, and and the other losses, and as you say, her father died, her older sister died. Um, her brother dies a few years later in an accident. The one who had served in the war, um, and and so very very difficult times in that respect. Notwithstanding all that, uh, were they able to make a reasonably happy life for themselves in Freeport? From everything I can tell, they had a good life. The letters that she wrote to her parents um, were only from their first three years together, but I thought that they, they paint a good picture of um, of her inviting his family over to, to holiday celebrations, of her neighbors being there for her when her children die and supporting her. Um, they were members of the Episcopal Church there and, and active from everything I could tell. And in the end, her her mother wound up staying with them a, a good deal of the time after after David Swain, her husband, died, and being there to to see her grandchildren growing up and um, and participating in family activities. Although I guess the one story that we need to share with the listeners is that she she didn't ever back down from her declaration that she would not sit with a Yankee general at the dinner table. And so whether she was visiting in their home in Freeport, Illinois, or they were visiting in her home in Raleigh, every evening that she and the general were in the same house together, he would carry her dinner up to her on a tray and sit with her in her room while she ate. But she never would back down from that declaration of she was not going to sit at a dinner table with a Yankee. 
So she she's stuck by that her entire life. Her entire uh, life she's stuck by it. Wow. Now the uh, and they also uh, the Ella and her children spent a lot of time in North Carolina uh, after the marriage. Uh, they were apart for part of the year. Was that correct? They were apart for part of the year, and 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 the part of the year that they were apart was during the winter time. Um, the winters are very harsh up there in Freeport. I still have relatives who live there, and. And um, I had planned to go visit in March this summer, this past year, and they said, no, don't come. We may still have snow on the ground. And yet here in North Carolina in March, you know, we've got March madness and, and daffodils blooming and all. So it, as, it, as it happened for, for most of their marriage, um, once her father died, Ella would come bring her children, uh, well, General Ackers would bring her and the children down to Raleigh, and they would spend the winter in Raleigh with her mother, and then in the springtime, he would come back and get them and take them up to Freeport for the spring and the summer. And so that's how they, that's how they continued until, um, until the spring of 1881 when they were down here and he had not come yet to pick them up. Um, and there was an illness and Ella fell ill. And the next thing, General Atkins was receiving a telegram saying that his wife had died. Uh, well, and... I mean, that, that arrangement of traveling north and south would certainly make sense, especially in the era before air conditioning. You, you'd want to be in Illinois in the summer, and you'd right. want to be <laughs> in, North in North Carolina, Carolina. in the winter. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, he lived on, um, you, you mentioned he, he always remembered his Civil War experience and uh, uh, spent some time uh, on a committee to build a monument to his regiment. He did, and he was very active in all of the reunions that were held for the 92nd, and he'd also served with the 11th Illinois. He was active with all those. He was a member of the Grand Army, the Republic organization that got together every year. So he was extremely active. He wound up, in addition to being postmaster and practicing law, he also was editor of the Freeport newspaper for many years. And so he led a very active life um, and was busy. And, And... Good. That was good for him because he lived to the ripe old age of 77, which was fairly long in those days. Um, he and Ella only wound up being married just shy of 16 years because of, of her early death um, when she contracted that, that illness. Now, way back uh, when we started talking, you mentioned some of the things we know about their, their early relationship uh, it come from a diary of Mrs. Spencer, uh, a neighbor of theirs. That that was a source you seem to rely on quite a bit. Can you tell me more about uh, who, who was Mrs. Spencer? Uh, Mrs. Spencer's father was a professor at the university. After she had, she grew up in Chapel Hill, and after she married, she moved away. But her husband died young, and she wound up coming back to Chapel Hill as a young a, a young woman, a, 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 a widowed woman with a child and and living the rest of her life in Chapel Hill. She did a great deal of writing for um newspapers and magazines and and um seemed to be the chronicler for what was going on in the town. I relied on her um so much because there wasn't a whole lot of other reference to what was going on at that time. And over the years after President Swain died, she did stay in touch with Mrs. Swain writing her um letters over those years, and, and there were copies of those letters available to me as well. So it gave a good picture of even after David Swain died and, and 
um, of, of what was going on in the lives of the Swain family, including in the lives of, of Ellen, her husband, and children. So you had those letters, you had journal, you had the, the Swain's own letters. Uh, you mentioned also uh, family history. You're related directly to some of these people? Well, they, Ella and the general were my great-great-grandparents. That makes President Swain and his wife my third great-grandparents. And, and so I had an interest in it from that perspective as well, that here, were, here was my family and suddenly I had access to all this information and it just felt like the time was right to, to tell the rest of their story and, and, and what their life had been like together. So it was a labor of love as, as, as well as a, a labor of, of um, investigative, investigative reporting and, and research and all. Well, it is an interesting story. It takes that, uh, that, that uh, uh, metaphor of the, the North-South romance that novelists use and puts a real face on it. And uh, uh, I think our listeners will enjoy reading a copy of Undaunted Heart, The True Story of a Southern Belle and a Yankee General by Susie Borelli. Susie, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.